0: The Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app, and now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado indiana iowa and new jersey must be 21 plus if you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help contact 1-800-522-4700 in colorado 1-800 bets off in iowa 1-800-9 with it in indiana and 1-800 gambler in new jersey visit thescore.bet for more details Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, still remotely, by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hello there. <laughs> Hello there, Wolf.
1: <laughs> What's oh. happening, man? Not much. Second episode of the week. Yeah, it's. Uh, it might take us a little while to get used to the rhythms of this, but yeah. happy to be back here with you and uh, ready to throw down another one of these.
0: Yeah, by the way, before we get into it, I do want to say, and, and as usual, we'll save our like fan shout out for the week, but I did uh, I did at least just want to send a thank you out to everyone who tweeted at us or messaged us about Pound the Rock being among the most listened to podcasts as part of their personal year-end Spotify wrapped. Some of these people include people we've shouted out before, uh, Randall Furman, Deshaun, as well as David Brooke, who reached out on Instagram to say Christmas came early because we're recording twice a week now. <laughs> Um, so yeah, just, uh, wanted to at least acknowledge off the top that, uh, we see you, we hear you <laughs> and we're here for you. Um, <laughs> and, and then to, to some of the people that reached out about Spotify wrapped and, and PTR being on their Spotify wrapped that have not gotten a shout out before. Only reason I'm not mentioning you now is because at some point over the next few weeks, I'll get you a shout out. So anyway, we'll get to the fan shout out of the week at the end of the episode, but I did just want to acknowledge that off the top.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, great to see, heartwarming, obviously for us. I didn't know people really listened to podcasts on Spotify, so <laughs> that's that's uh, that's really nice to see. And uh, as always, just really appreciate all the listeners who, uh, you know, have uh, have kept us going for what are we on now? For four years now, we've been doing this. Three and a half, I guess. Yeah, two hundred and eight episodes. Pretty wild, very
0: wild. All right, before we get into the meat of this episode we got to at least touch on the star injuries around it's that time we, of year, you know? Yeah. And, and honestly, this, this unfortunate list of star injuries that have literally all happened just within the last 72 hours since we last recorded. So I'm going to quickly run through them here. And then maybe you can pick the one that you think is most impactful or that you want it there. If there's one that you want to talk about the most or that concerns you the most. Uh, so we got bam out of bio, Needed surgery for a thumb injury. Uh, He's out four to six weeks. So I didn't realize that the collateral, collateral ligament, I always thought of as just in the elbow because you always hear about w- with pitchers and baseball. So I didn't realize it runs to the thumb. Um, But so when I first got that alert on my phone via the score app um, and saw UCL, I was like, what well, does Bam need Tommy John? Like what's going on over here? And then realized it was a thumb injury. So anyway, Bam's out four to six weeks. Um, Devin Booker suffered a hamstring injury in that thrilling win over the Warriors earlier this week. Uh, by the way, Suns now up to a franchise record 18 straight wins. Uh, Booker, I think there has not been a timeline put on it. It seems like it's minor, so it doesn't seem yeah, like Yeah, they
1: just good said it. a few games yeah. and that it and that it was minor and that it's mostly just precautionary. So okay. So. Um which makes sense when you're 19 and 3 and yeah. uh, you know have bigger picture goals in mind, so Yeah. By the way, uh, Suns now
0: the 14th team in history to win at least 18 games in a row. Of the previous 13, um, seven won the championship, five lost in the finals, I believe. One lost in the... No, sorry. Five won the championship, one lost in the finals, uh, five lost in the conference
1: finals, I believe, and
0: a couple lost in the first round.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like definitely there was that Rockets team that won 22 straight they lost in, in the first like round. 2007, they lost in the first round. Tracy I want to say win. that Mavericks team, that 67 win Mavs team that lost to the Warriors in the first round, had a win streak that long at some point. Um, so yeah, certainly no guarantee of playoff success, but uh, hard to argue that the Suns are playing as well as any team in the league right yeah. now. They've been ridiculous. Then we got
0: Dame Lillard out at least 10 days. That was a couple days ago, so he's got about eight days left at least. Uh, due to an abdominal injury, the Blazers just lost at home versus San Antonio last night. They stink. They're only 11-12. but They stink. I know you might be a bigger Blazers believer than the rest of us, but they're trash, man.
1: I got to say, my Blazers belief is waning for <laughs> yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, and obviously, Dame being out is not going to help matters, but again, it's like, okay, they're 11-12, and 12 and they're like one game out of fourth in yeah. the West. So yeah. it's like, you know, I never really believed in the Blazers as a title contender, but i it's not like I believe in them any less than all these other West teams that are bunched up there. Like, they could still find themselves in the four seed and in the second round. It's just, um, yeah, I, uh, regardless of whether that happens for them, I've been disappointed with the way <laughs> they've played. And we talked about a few episodes back just why I didn't think the defensive scheme made sense for them. And yet they continue to run it. A ridiculous amount um they're i think kevin o'connor shared a graphic with the data from second spectrum that showed they're basically blitzing pick and rolls twice as frequently as any other team in the league Where they and roster all,
0: equipped to do it
1: and they're also like getting scored on like at the highest points per possession when they blitz so yeah maybe maybe scale it back a bit i don't know yeah. maybe i don't think chauncey billups is good there's a hot take
0: um <laughs> Then we've got uh, Brooke Lopez, underwent back mm. surgery. He's out indefinitely, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that, the, weird one about, the weird one about that is like he's been out since opening yeah. night, and yeah. he's just having the back surgery now. So clearly they tried to Do rehab something. it, yeah. get him back without him having to go under the knife. And it's, I think this is sort of similar to what happened with Pascal Siakam last year, where like it took a while before he actually decided to have the surgery. And it's just obviously always frustrating when that happens because you lose so much time, right? Like yeah. it bumps the recovery timetable back, however, however many weeks you waited. And yeah, I mean, that's a big blow for the Bucks. They signed Boogie Cousins, who is a stopgap at best, and it's certainly not going to uh, be able to come close to replacing what they were getting from Brooke. So obviously for the Bucks, it's all about the playoffs. They just have to hope he's he's somewhat healthy by then, but uh, not a great sign.
0: Yeah, it's a shame for them too, because I, I know Lopez wasn't involved in it because he's been out since opening night, but like this team is just finally getting healthy. Like Holiday and Middleton have been consistently in the lineup again. Um, you know, they, they, before losing in Toronto last night without Giannis, who was resting, they had one eight straight, Uh, They're still undefeated, by the way, with all of Giannis, Middleton and Holiday on the court this year. So Mm. it is a shame that like, instead of kind of continuing to get healthier, they're now actually going to be without one of their linchpins for who knows how long. And obviously defensively, especially it, it lowers their ceiling a bit. Um, And then the most recent one, which isn't a new injury, but it is an unfortunate development in an injury saga is that Zion Williamson, who had been cleared for full basketball activities and was practicing uh full throttle, I believe uh, recovering from that broken foot ends up developing soreness in the foot. And I believe has been shut down again until next week when they're going to ramp him or sorry, not shut down, but it's been like his, his uh, I guess on court work and rehab and stuff has been scaled back for a week. And then they're going to try to get him going back to full strength next week, but his return has been delayed. So, Do any of those stick out as, you know, most concerning in terms of this year? I know the Zion thing continues to be concerning long-term. As you know, I've been voicing my concerns now with Zion, unfortunately, for a while. Like, just keep saying it. But a guy at that size having multiple foot and or knee issues at that age, too, he's only 21. Like, look, he, he looks awesome when he's on the court. No one's denying that. Um, And if you, if you told me he would have average health for the rest of his career, I'd be like, well, then he's a surefire superstar. But like, I don't see how anyone can assume he'll be available enough or play long enough at this point. Like you just kind of kind of hope for the best, but unfortunately maybe expect the worst when it, when it comes to his durability and availability. And like, I was thinking about it last night. And like, if someone gave you right now, Zion Williamson over, under 1.5,
1: all NBA selections,
0: I might go under.
1: I would still go over, but I mean, obviously that, you know, you just don't know. Like I I have no basis for saying that I think he's going to be healthy enough to get there. My only basis is that like, if he is even reasonably healthy throughout the course of his career, you know, can give you something like four full seasons, you know, where he plays like 70 or more games, then I think he hits the over because he is that good. But um, I mean, I remember talking about that, about this. In his rookie season, even when he had to miss the first, I don't even know how many games with a, with a knee injury that he suffered during preseason where it's like, you know, if he's just, you know, your sort of average run of the mill rookie with a more standard NBA body type, I don't think it's as much of a concern as it is if you're talking about like a, a near 300 pound man who plays a really high impact style of basketball. Like it's not just about his weight. It's about the fact that he can jump out of the gym, right? Like that's what makes him such an anomaly is he is so like strong and sturdy and girthy, I guess you could say, but he can also really get off the ground and his style of play is such that he is jumping and landing, you know, many, many times a game. And the stress of that impact is i mean I'm not you know a physiologist, but like it just seems suboptimal and a little bit scary when you're when you're thinking about the long term prospects of his physical health and his body and and now all of the lower body injuries that are starting to pile up for him early in his career so yeah i'm I'm super concerned uh about about his long term future and You know, obviously I I, I don't have any personal stake in the Pelicans fortunes, but if you're a Pelicans fan, it's just, I don't know. It's got to be a really helpless feeling because they lose Anthony Davis and then immediately like land the number one pick, get another generational type superstar. And it's like before it's even had a chance to get off the ground, this era of Pelicans basketball has just been stymied in such an agonizing way and kind of compounding that. Like they, they have started to play a lot better recently and With I know they're since like
0: since Ingram got back
1: something like that, you know, but to the point that, that despite the fact that they dug this massive hole to start the season, they have played, I think the, the most difficult schedule in the league. So it's getting easier the rest of the way. I feel like again, like since Ingram got back, they've started to play better and you know, I was really excited coming into the season about what a a JV and Zion front court could do and how difficult that would be for opposing teams to handle. And I was especially excited because it's like, there's no other team that was going to be like that, that was going to win in the way that they were going to win. So I'm thinking like when they started to play a little bit, a a little bit better uh, and JV has just been like out of his mind for the majority of the season, their guard (laughs) plays. Yeah. Um, dude they like that game against the clippers he's like coming off a weak side pin downs knocking down threes it was absurd it was like Um,
0: like they were running plays for
1: him like he's a shooter like a shooter on the move it was absurd as you say it was mental um so yeah i'm thinking like okay zion gets back absolutely no reason this team can't make a run and get into the play-in you know um but if it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back it's like i think they're gonna lose too much ground and that's you know, ignoring whatever state Zion comes back in, right? Like we've seen in the past when he's had these long layoffs and especially when it's lower body stuff, right? When you can't really do the requisite fitness work to get yourself into game shape in the way that, you know, if you're dealing with like a finger injury or a wrist injury or something, I feel like it's still pretty easy to get the the cardio in that you need. Um, but when it's been lower body stuff, like we've seen Zion come back and just like not be in... Yeah you know, in shape. And Um, I'd imagine he'd be on a minutes limit too. Just a hundred percent. Um, and we know that already there's been friction between him and the organization regarding like how his injuries have been handled and how his minutes have been managed. So I don't know. It's just all kinds of bad. Like that's, you asked me like, is there one of those that sticks out as being most concerning? I feel like it's obviously that like the Suns will be fine. The blazers just stink. (laughs) Okay. well, I mean, the thing with the Blazers, I just don't think this really changes anything in the big right. picture. And hopefully, I mean, Dame's been dealing with that ab injury for a while. Yep. So that, I guess, makes it a concern. But it also, you know, maybe this layoff just sort of helps him get back to the level that we're accustomed mm-hmm. to seeing from him, because obviously the season's been a big struggle for him. So, you know, that just sort of is what it is. Um, although, you know, you didn't mention TJ McConnell being out indefinitely wow. with the wrist injury and that that's. Really concerning for a Pacers team that just can't catch a break. Yeah, um, you t- but, you
0: tell me you've uh, renounced your Pacers fandom and yet you just can't help yourself.
1: It's not fandom at this point. Like, it's honestly, it's just pity. I, no, I, it, I this it, team, like, they can't get healthy. They can't figure themselves out.
0: They might now go 33 and 49 instead of 38 and 44.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> You're saying TJ McConnell is worth five wins, no, man. I mean, even yeah, even no, I'm not that injury, bullish on TJ the McConnell. The, injury,
0: <laughs> the injuries in general. The injuries in general.
1: Uh, yeah. Hope to see TJ Warren back at some point, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I feel do, – do you have anything to add on the injury front? I just – I mean the, the Bucks. I guess you could say. Like that's – in terms of their championship prospects, Bucs right. was super important to them winning the title last year. And if he's not right by the end of the season, that's—I mean, I'm not going to say that spells like the end of their championship hopes, but that's a huge blow, man. Like he is like such I an said, important it lowers part of their defensive
0: ceiling, incredibly.
1: Oh yeah, and um, you know, kudos to Bobby Portis, who's done a great job of filling in. But uh, like, in terms of the rim protection, like playing drop coverage. You know, the the rebounding, I feel like he can replicate. The interior scoring, he can replicate. And he, he's obviously a better shooter than Brook at this point. But uh, yeah, defensively, it's just not going to be remotely the same animal. And I don't know. I mean, that's, that's just going to make it a whole lot tougher for them if Brook isn't Brook.
0: Absolutely. The injury of least concern, as we mentioned, was uh, Booker's hamstring issue um Suns have said it's just precautionary you might miss a few games Suns are rolling anyway the the game it might hurt them the most right it should hurt them the most is they play depending on when you listen to this they play tonight at oracle in a rematch of that tuesday game and booker Suns on the second night of a back-to-back at Oracle. warriors out for revenge I, I i think the win streak ends tonight if you're listening to this sometime on the weekend at it- probably will have ended already. But uh, any overarching takeaways from your perspective watching that game? I know they're going to play again tonight, so maybe it's weird to get too deep into it, but no Booker, so it will be a much different game. Um, so from, you know, I was going to say a full-strength game, but Clay Thompson still isn't playing. So uh, from a full-strength game, when you consider the Thompsonless Warriors against the Suns earlier this week, and I guess the Char- the Starichless Suns, <laughs> give me a takeaway or a couple takeaways you had.
1: Uh, the Suns' defense is so good. Like, they're, they're just is so, one of the
0: finest defensive games I've watched, like, in I don't know how long.
1: I mean, he was great, but I, I honestly think... Aiden. Not that he didn't deserve all of the praise that he got, but I, I think the effort to contain Steph and the Warriors' offense as a whole was very much uh, a, a team effort on the Suns' part. And, Him and Bridges was, was the head of the... Bridges was the head of the snake, yeah. And I think, you know, his ability to kind of track Steph off ball, his length bothering Steph, getting around screens. Like I, I, I'm I, kind of racking my brain and wondering, you know, how many guys in the league bridges size navigate screens as well as he does.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking. Because you think when you think like historically of guys that have guarded stuff, whether it's like Fred Van Vliet or in general, not even just guarding Steph, but. Guys who chase the shooters around, you know, the guys you would put on J.J. Reddick, you know, back in the day. Yeah, you don't think of a guy, Mikael Bridges' size.
1: No, I think, you know, talking about Steph specifically, I feel like maybe prime Danny Green was the one guy I can think of where he's sort of wing size, but can still really get around those screens and then also use the length to bother his shot a little bit. But yeah, like Bridges did a fantastic job, but it was you know, like Aiton really held his own on switches and the Suns were doing a fair amount of switching. Uh, Some of it was late switching in, you know, out of drop coverage, but a lot of it was just sort of like switching at the point of the screen. And I just think their communication and their anticipation was also on point, right? Like they never messed up a switch. When Bridges couldn't get over, whoever was guarding the screen just like immediately recognized it and jumped up to switch or to hedge. And then the tag was immediately coming and the weak side was immediately zoning up. It was just like clockwork. So for the entire team, I thought, you know, they, they just had a wonderful game plan and executed it perfectly. I thought, you know, Chris Paul had had one of the best defensive games I've seen from him in a while too, just wreaking havoc on the weak side. Um, and the Suns were kind of I, I guess I wonder why we didn't see Steph reject more screens, actually, because the Suns were anticipating and jumping up high on everything. And I feel like that would maybe give him an opportunity to like reject and either get open for a three or get into the teeth of the defense. Maybe we'll see more of that. And I will say also, you know, Steph just missed a whole bunch of shots he usually makes. And at the same time, he did talk post game about how like bridges length and like the way that the Suns guarded him just sort of got him out of rhythm And so even the open shots that he usually makes didn't feel like rhythm shots. So maybe there's something to that. Um, But yeah, I just, I thought the Suns were amazing defensively. I thought overall Aiton was quite simply the best player on the floor. And I was really happy to see the Suns recognizing the matchup advantage that they had in him and looking for him early and often. Uh, On post seals, on the back end of switches. I mean, he was grabbing offensive rebounds. Like he really punished the Warriors for their lack of interior size and I think you know just looking at this matchup in the big picture you know if we're gonna obviously we're gonna see it again tonight but also you know potentially see it in the playoffs that is a big pressure point you know like the the Warriors don't have anyone in their rotation who can really match up with him size-wise and in the past, I feel like we would maybe see Aiden not leverage his size and physicality to the extent that he did on Tuesday night. Um, and I was really encouraged to to see him doing that, to see him taking advantage uh, of the mismatches that he was consistently getting and to see the Suns looking for him the, the way that they were. So um, yeah, and then I guess, you know, also it's probably encouraging for the Warriors that they were in this game pretty much the entire time, despite... Steph shooting four for 21, because I thought their defense was also quite good. And obviously Jordan Poole picked up a lot of the slack. He was fantastic. Um, So I I just think it's a super fun matchup with two teams that execute really well, that know themselves really well. And I'm excited to see what it looks like in game two.
0: Yeah. The Warriors are just a juggernaut again, man, when you consider, as you said, Steph having one of the worst games I've seen from him. It, it may be the worst individual game I've seen from him in the Kerr era. Still no clay. Um, fun matchup overall. Suns, I, I don't know if we've touched on this actually yet this season. And I'm sure at some point we'll touch on it, you know, at greater length in the near future. But do you think Sarver's Suns have seen enough from DeAndre Ayton this season to uh, consider him <laughs> a max player? Or do you think, you think they still have some reservations? Like, just Well, he's getting a max in the offseason. No, I know. No, like I know. That, that's... Ah. So, so you're asking, I'm, like, are they going to match it or let him walk? <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious and saying, you know, they, they weren't ready to give him mm-hmm. a max deal yet in the offseason. I don't know what they wanted to see from him, but uh, yeah,
1: I hope they've I mean, seen it. it. Look, like, I, I have had no issue clowning Robert Sarver in the past, and he deserves to be clowned. He deserves to be, I mean, frankly, he deserves to be excised from the NBA given all that we know about him and what's been going on in his organization for years and years. But I also think that thing with the and contract negotiation maybe got a little bit overblown because, yeah, was it extremely likely that he was going to back up his play from last year and last year's playoffs and and play his way into a max contract? Yes, it was. But also, I, I don't think there's this huge downside to waiting you know, to seeing like, could he replicate that? Like, could he establish himself as like a a foundational type of center? And he's doing that. And so you wind up giving him the max, like what, like you wind up in the same situation that you would have if you'd given him the extension. Like I I understand this idea that you want to foster goodwill between organization and player. But at the end of the day, I mean, the money is going to talk like he, is going to sign a max contract when he becomes an RFA this offseason. So is there really that much downside there? Like, I, I, I guess the downside is, okay, what if he signs like a shorter term offer sheet with another team? And then maybe you only have him for the next four years instead of the next five. Uh, that, that I guess is the downside there. Right. But, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just felt like it wasn't a great look, but I also think maybe it was a tad bit, Overblown, the Suns'
0: performance, not just in that game, but on the season as a whole, thanks in large part, of course, to Chris Paul and Devin Booker. I think is a good segue to talk about a great piece you wrote earlier this week titled "Does Getting to the Rim Matter as Much as It Used to?" And uh, I mean, I-, I can summarize it a bit, but you wrote about um, rim at rim frequency dropping in the NBA. Um, you've got some good intel in there and info and. Um, I thought it was interesting too, even at one point when you break down the way, uh, over the last five years shot selection from certain zones has gone. And I think maybe people would imagine, you know, the three point rate would just be soaring, but as you show, it's actually leveled off a bit. And, um, if anything, it, it does seem like some of the at rim attempts have gone beyond the arc, but a lot of them have gone to that kind of mid short, mid floater area, which even that in and of itself you've written about before but obviously that ties right in with what the Suns do you know a team that doesn't get to the rim but kills you from that short mid area anyway so yeah talk to us about your piece uh what you found what you learned and what you think is interesting going forward
1: well yeah I mean so I was sort of fascinated by this idea I mean really what what made me want to write about it in the first place was when I was digging into Chris Paul's stats and realizing how infrequently he was getting to the basket. And we talked about that a couple episodes ago. I think at the time he'd taken six shots in the restricted area all season. He might have boosted that all the way up to eight since then. But uh, I was also noticing that the Suns as a team were, were getting to the rim very infrequently and that. If they were to go on and win a championship, they would be, you know, the cleaning the glass database runs nineteen years back to uh, the two thousand three two thousand four season, so or two thousand two two thousand three maybe, but basically, it, in in that time span uh, since they've been tracking rim frequency as a proportion of shot attempts, no team has won a championship with anything close to that low of a rim frequency. So that's kind of what got me thinking about it. It's like, okay, is this a limiting factor for the Suns? Should we be concerned about, you know, their lack of rim shots? And is that going to be an impediment toward them winning? Especially given that in the finals last year, they got beat up inside by the Bucks, really at both ends, right? Like they couldn't score at the rim. They couldn't stop the Bucks at the rim. And that is what tilted the finals. Like they shot the ball way better than the Bucks did in the finals. And they still lost because they were getting dominated on the interior. So that's kind of what prompted me to start digging into it. And that's when I found it wasn't just the Suns. Like the league as a whole is taking way fewer uh, rim shots than it did even two years ago. And that was like really the jarring shift to me where if you go back to the 2019-20 season, which again... Two years ago, very recently, there was one team in the league taking less than 30% of its shots at the rim. This season, there's eight of those teams. And same thing on defense. That 2019-20 season, there was one team allowing opponents to take less than 30% of their shots at the rim. That was the Bucks, obviously. Um, and this year, there are nine. So that's obviously been a big shift in a short amount of time, and... I started to think about, okay, like why is this happening and what does it mean? Um, and and what's also interesting is like most of those teams that are like near the bottom of the league in rim frequency that are like under that 30% threshold are really, really good offenses. Uh, the Suns being one of them, the Nets being one of them, the Heat being one of them, the Hawks, the Sixers. So I... I was yeah I want to know like why is this happening and like given the fact that those teams that aren't getting the basket still have really potent offenses does it really matter as much as it used to and my feeling is that no it doesn't like it still clearly is very important but I think what I came away feeling is it's not just an, an offensive thing like it's not just that offenses are like oh we want to take more threes so those shots have to be redistributed from somewhere so we're going to take less shots at the rim Um, because like you mentioned three point frequency is sort of starting to taper off in terms of like the acceleration of it long mid rangers which were basically just in like steep decline and for the longest time um, that's those were the shots that were turning into threes right like I think people maybe well, some people maybe kind of misunderstand um, like the mori Ball revolution where they, they want to paint it as like, we're just shooting threes now. Yeah, they're passing up they... layups
0: in the open court to get, <laughs> right.
1: to take and, th- and that's what they would chalk up the the decline in rim right. attempts too, is like, oh, well, everyone's just shooting threes now. But that's not really it, right? Like yeah. they, it was about threes and shots at the rim and free throws. So for a very long time, like rim frequency wasn't changing at all. It was just that all of these long mid-rangers were turning into threes, but long mid-range frequency has like completely stabilized. Um, It's been around 10% for the last three seasons now. So that's when you start to think, okay, so like now some of the rim shots are becoming three pointers. And also some of the rim shots are becoming floaters and like short mid-range attempts. And I think part of the reason that's happening is that there are a lot more teams defensively that are making a point of taking away the rim. Um, Like even if that means giving up a boatload of threes. And I do think the influence of those bucks teams in 2018, 19, 2019, 20, that kind of pioneered those defensive principles, those have been like really influential teams. I think that's a big part of the shift that we've seen and the teams that are doing the sort of same thing now in terms of like the principle of it are doing it in like dramatically different ways, right? Uh, like if you watch Miami, Toronto, Golden State, Boston, all those teams are dead set on rim suppression, but they are all going about trying to enact that strategy in like completely different ways. Um, and none of them are doing it remotely like those Bucks teams did. You know, it's not the kind of deep drop that the Bucs played, but it's zone defenses to try to push the ball away from the middle of the floor or it's you know like in the in the case of the Raptors and the heat it's like super aggressive nail help helping on every drive basically um, in the Celtics case it's just like switching everything and trying to flatten stuff out uh, and then providing supplemental help it's like they're going about it in different ways but the point is defenses don't want you to get to the rim so it's it, it's not that like shot to the rim have like become less valuable they've actually become more valuable uh, and like, as I mentioned in the piece, like a, a shot at the rim now goes in like 64% of the time compared to 60% only 10 years ago. But those shots are are less available because of the way teams are playing defense. and And so because of that, teams like the Suns that have incredible counters for these paint packing styles of defenses have become super valuable and super important right? Like the Suns can just burn you from mid range. And uh, there isn't a whole lot that you can do about it. Like those are the shots that so many defenses have been trained and designed to give up. But like, what do you really do against a team like Phoenix that can take what you give them every single time? Um, And just just
0: massacre you
1: doing it. And that's, I just think that's like a super interesting sort of tactical shift and and almost like a tactical inefficiency that they've found where the league maybe went so far in the direction of like rim shots and threes at both ends of the floor that there was like a little bit of room for a team like them that could absolutely master the middle of the floor to kind of find that inefficiency and take advantage of it. Uh, And I think that's sort of what we're seeing now with them. It's a little bit what we're seeing with Brooklyn, although um, Brooklyn is even lighter on rim pressure, I think than Phoenix is because Phoenix at least has Aiton and they have Bridges, like both of whom, Bridges as a slasher, Aiton as a kind of post threat or a guy like on the offensive glass or on the back end of switches who can really provide that rim pressure. The Nets don't really have any of that. And with Harden not getting to the rim at his usual rate, like they are very, very dependent on jump shooting. So it worries me with them a little bit more than it worries me uh, with Phoenix. But um, yeah, I just think as as like a league-wide trend, it really fascinates me. Because, uh, like, I think there is this long history of if you don't get to the rim, you're probably not going to win a championship. And I wonder if this is the year that maybe that changes.
0: Given that the Nets and Suns don't get to the rim and, and two of those teams could very well meet in the finals. Yeah, I think I think it is a good bet that this is the year it changes. I'd have to check the numbers on it, but are, are the Warriors getting to the rim that frequently?
1: Yeah, the Warriors are getting to the rim a ton. And that's actually, that, that's pretty interesting to me because in that game against the Suns, they didn't get to the rim at all. I right. think it might've been their lowest uh, rim attempt game of the season. And so the the things that they've actually been like thriving on, which is, I mean, obviously, like everyone thinks of Steph shooting, but what's really been driving their offensive success is how they've been leveraging that shooting into slips and back cuts and things like that that are getting them a lot of uncontested layups and dunks and I think the Suns did a magnificent job of sniffing those opportunities out um a lot of that was just Aiton kind of roving as a helper on the back line he was guarding Draymond a lot of the time and just straight up you know ignoring him to help um so it is interesting that like yeah, like you take, like the, the Warriors are still thriving on rim shots, and if you take that away, their offense kind of dies on the vine. Um, although again, Steph shooting four for 21 didn't really help in that regard, but I, I'm just sort of fascinated to track the trend moving forward because, uh, again, like we uh, people will tell you it's a jump shooting league and it's been that way for a while, but we have have seen a real balance in the past few years of like, okay, it's a jump shooting league, but these jump shooting teams are still very reliant on getting to the rim. And now it's moving even more toward, you know, not just jump shooting, but like the floaters that I mentioned, which are when it comes to playing against drop coverage or even zones, that's a really good counter. And that's why well, we're seeing most like important teams, shots in modern basketball. They're up there for sure. And that's, you know, in in conjunction with, rim frequency going down and three point frequency plateauing floater range is where we're still seeing that increase and um if you can master that zone the way that phoenix can the way that the hawks can maybe uh then that can potentially give you a leg up when it comes to trying to beat the defenses that we're seeing today
0: are we going to live in a time where being able to get to the rim consistently is a market inefficiency (laughs) in the game of basketball because that would be wild Well, the thing is, and and honestly... Or is it already? Maybe, is it already a market inefficiency? Shout out John Morant.
1: (laughs) Well, this is why I was so excited to watch the Pelicans, man. Because it's like, the the Pelicans would have just, like with Zion and JV there, destroyed teams on the interior. And it is a a little bit of like, you know, uh, unstoppable force meeting immovable object because, okay... So you have all these teams that their their defense is designed to prevent you from getting to the rim. Do you then want to counter that by not needing to get to the rim in order for your offense to be successful? Or do you want to just be like so overwhelmingly dominant at the rim that all these teams that are having to come up with counters, you know, and, and, less efficient counters, to be clear, like a shot from floater range is still way, way less likely to go in than a shot at the rim. Uh, Do you want to be just like so overwhelming and forceful going to the basket that then, like you say, you are exploiting a sort of efficiency in the game? I would be curious to see that. I'm curious to see if the Pelicans at full strength can kind of take advantage uh, of, of what has maybe become an inefficiency. And that's, it just speaks to how cyclical all this stuff is right? Because first the inefficiency was threes and then everyone started shooting threes. And so like, you know, the teams that got to the rim more, maybe started to have a little bit more of a leg up and the defenses, like the Bucks that sort of recognized ahead of time that like, you know what, we're fine giving up a certain type of threes. Even if we give up a ton of them, we're just not going to let you shoot at the rim. Like that was a big tactical inefficiency for them that led to them having some of the best defenses of all time relative to league average. The rest of the league caught up to that, and now it's like we're seeing the next wave, Uh, and it's just going to keep going around like that. I feel it's always moving, right? Like there's—I don't think anything stable about NBA tactics. Uh, I think it's always going to be a search for that next inefficiency, and so yeah, maybe right now it is just like the team that can absolutely dominate from mid-range and floater range, and then maybe we see a, a, a snap back to that where. More teams are starting to do that, and then there are these other teams that are like, "Nah, like fuck that. We're we're just going to the rim every single time."
0: Yeah, yeah. Everyone talks about the NBA as a copycat league. You'll hear that a lot. Um, you know, where it's like a team does something maybe new or inventive, and and then everyone else is doing it within a couple of years. But I think it's more of a like, how do how do we beat you, league? It's 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 one team it, more so than everyone copying one team. It's usually one team finding a way to beat something that everyone is doing or everyone is not doing and then everyone realizes like oh that's actually the formula to like beat this thing we can't you know what i mean and whether it was like tom thibodeau's ice defense uh yeah back when he was the defensive coordinator for the celtics and then head coach of the bulls it's like okay yeah everyone ended up doing it but it's not i don't know that's one thing it's a, it's a really like random minor thing but it's always kind of been a pet peeve of mine when people say the nba is a copycat league is it's like Well, A, duh, if something works, other teams are going to catch on. But more so than copycat, it's that, like, it's uh, what's the next move, League? How do I beat you? How do we beat this new thing, League? And to your point, that's why it probably will be cyclical. Because it's like, okay, you know, this is is what's happening right now. But something will happen or a team will do something to counter this. And then teams will have to react to that. Uh, So... I think it's a more adaptive league than a copycat league. And I think that's cool.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's really well said. And adaptive league is how I would frame it as well. And like, yeah, within that, there is a lot of copycat elements right. because the first team that adapts is going to blaze a trail and other teams are going to want to do the same thing. But, you know, it's also important to remember that it's always going to be personnel based, at least for like the smart teams that know what they're doing you know, and there are certainly <laughs> teams that are just like, they just see what, you know, like might see what the Suns are doing and be like, Oh, and like maybe we should try and do that. And like, they don't have the personnel to do it. So it's obviously not going to work. Um, and it's like, you know, the rockets right now who the, the rockets have actually started to play a lot better lately. So I, I don't want to drag them for this, but like they have by far the highest rim frequency in the league. And that ought to be a good thing, but they also have a terrible offense. And like, it's, you have to also think about like the process by which they're getting those shots, right. Where it's like, if you're not actually focusing on like running an offense that gets good shots for, you know, the players on your roster and puts them in advantageous spots, then like that philosophy isn't really going to make sense for you. Like if, if the goal is just, okay, let's take as many shots at the rim as we can. And you're not thinking about like how you're coming by those shots or who's taking them, then, um, you know, the, the the tactic is sort of going to tilt out of whack. Like, there has to be a sound, I think, organic process behind it uh, for it to make sense. And that's why it's working for Phoenix, because, like, their their system is perfectly tailored to their personnel. And it's not something that another team could just go and replicate. So I, I just find all this stuff, like, super fascinating. And it's it's subtle, too. Like, I don't know if I you know, just watching an NBA game would be able to say, you know, it seems like teams are getting to the rim less frequently than right. they were three years ago. Um, but, you know, once once you sort of see, see the numbers and start looking for it, it does become evident, just like the the different ways that teams are playing def, uh, defense and the ways that offenses are reacting to that. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's pretty cool. All
0: right, let's take the break and come back and maybe spend like 15, 20 minutes talking about, The timberwolves hell yeah what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android that's where you can find all of our featured content as well as live scores updates and breaking news And don't forget to check out the score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, the Minnesota Timberwolves, 11 and 11, tied with the Clippers for seventh. By the way, shout out Paul George's Clippers, Uh, whether it's next week or sometime soon, we probably should talk about them. Um, If you remember when we gave Deshaun a shout out a couple weeks ago, that's actually one thing he had requested. Uh, Anyway, Timberwolves have the fourth best net rating in the West behind the big three of the Warriors, Suns, and Jazz. Uh, They're sandwiched between the Sixers and Celtics uh, in the overall net rating rankings. You know, I thought this could be uh, a sleeper team coming in. One of my bold predictions, I guess in hindsight, it wasn't really that bold, is that they'd at least be a playing team and would finish ahead of the Pelicans. You know, I, I, I talked about how I thought Cat was in line for his best year and, And all that. So the fact that they're a 500 team about a quarter of the way through the season isn't all that surprising or shocking. But I think the thing that makes me want to talk about him is like, who the hell, and certainly not me, saw it going down like this? Where Chris Finch's Minnesota Timberwolves, with Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell, have a bottom 10 offense Mm -hmm. and a top seven defense. That's Timberwolves, top seven defense. Now, I will say, based on uh, the location of the shots they're giving up, like the their opponent's shot profile, if you dig mm-hmm. into the numbers, uh, you know, Cleaning the Glass has that great stat where it's like if teams just shot an average percentage from everywhere on the floor based on the shot profile you're giving up, what is like your expected defense? And the Timberwolves have a bottom five <laughs> expected opposing defense. Uh, effective field goal percentage which look that was basically the Knicks last year if you remember like the Knicks defense should have been bad but it wasn't it was elite and some of that was luck but some of it was just plain effort that you can't measure when you're talking about shot profiles like they they might have been giving up shots from the not best parts of the floor but they were trying really hard to contest them and they were moving and, and doing other things that were right and I think the Timberwolves have a little bit of that in them so look, are they going to be a top seven defense all year if this continues, if if their shot profile against them continues? Probably not. But is their defense a hell of a lot better than it's been in the last couple of years? I think so. Is the effort a lot better? I think so. Maybe that's also just because they're 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 in competitive games and, and you know, they're in the race, so to speak, early in the season. So it's easier to care about defense. But uh yeah, that's that's I guess all the background info you need before You start listening to us talk about these surprising Timberwolves. So let's talk about it. What have you seen? What are your observations of this team? How sustainable do you think they are as a team that will be in the mix to potentially snag like that fourth seed after that big three? Because it really is like the West really, really is wide open, not for a team looking to become a true contender because that top three is there, but it's wide open for a team to like snag that fourth spot and end up hosting a first round series.
1: I would say, I think that their offense can definitely get better and that their defense is probably almost certainly going to get worse. Like you mentioned, I mean, the, the opponent three point percentage is what's helping them out more than anything right now. But yeah, there are a lot of red flags there where they're still giving up a lot of rim shots and a lot of corner threes specifically. They're still dead last in defensive rebound rate and opponent free throw attempt rate. Um, so the fact that, that they're doing all that, you know, that they're, they're giving all that stuff up while still being seventh in defense, uh, is pretty crazy. I, I will say, you know, from a process perspective, there's been plenty to be happy about with the way that they've defended. Um, they force a ton of turnovers first and foremost, and that's, you know, the way they play defense, the hyper aggressive style, the blitzing, that's what it's designed to do. And the stuff they're giving up, like the corner threes and the free throw attempts is, is the downside of that. And we've. We've talked about the Raptors and how they defend. It's very similar defensive profile. But I think, first of all, Towns is really defending. Like, this is the best defense that I've seen him play. I think playing him up high at the level of the screen makes a lot more sense than having him in drop. I would still kind of feel better about them mixing it up a bit more than they do. I don't think he needs to be blitzing as often as he is, but I do think that activity level from him has... Been beneficial in terms of just it keeps him engaged. He was never a particularly good drop defender anyway, uh, and I just like the way that he's defending a whole lot more in this scheme than I have in the past. And you know, on the back line, he's been look uh, the, the rebounding has been an issue because the scheme they play constantly forces him to be away from the basket. Um, but I think he's doing a decent a decent job of kind of cracking back, uh, and sealing some defensive possessions when they need him to. So, I've been impressed with his defense. And then it's it's really like incumbent on the rest of that roster to be rotating on a string in order to make that scheme work. And I'll I'll talk I, I mean like we know that guys like Vanderbilt, McDaniels, Akogi, Beverly, those guys are great defenders and I think Vanderbilt and McDaniels especially Their kind of weak side rotations have been the biggest factor in making this work. I think Vanderbilt's one of the most underrated defenders in the league. He's been awesome. I think McDaniels is better, but like Vanderbilt, they can kind of slide in. And I think there's pretty, there's very little drop off. And I think he gives you a lot more at the offensive end than McDaniels is giving you, especially with his offensive rebounding, which has just been off the charts. But I actually think, you know, if you talk about their offense and why it's not working, those two things go hand in hand. And this is something we talked about before the season started, right? Like the lack of two-way balance on this team. And so part of like they they need to fill out these lineups with defensive specialists to make them viable at that end of the floor. But almost to a man, those, <laughs> those guys are bringing, I mean, I guess they're defensive specialists for a reason, right? Maybe that's self-explanatory. They're bringing very little at the offensive end and that's kind of crippling the Wolves spacing and the actions, you know, three man actions that they're trying to run with Russell, Cat, uh, and Edwards, oftentimes just kind of go nowhere because opposing teams are pulled in early. Uh, they're they're ignoring the other Wolves shooters, and that's just making it tough for them to get uh, to get their offense really in a good flow. And then it's like if they tilt too far toward the offensive side, if they're throwing, you know, like Malik Beasley into those lineups or. Um, I, they haven't played a lot with like Naz Reed and Towns on the floor at the same time but it's like if they go too far toward the offensive side of the ball I feel like they lose a lot defensively so the lack of two-way balance is hurting them but I do want to spotlight Edwards um, Man. because uh, just I'll start it on the defensive end I guess because I, I think that his off-ball defense has been way way more alert he's actually making timely rotations he's navigating off-ball screens better um, and I have just been like f- that leap from year one to year two, in terms of his off ball awareness has been pretty impressive. I, I would to
0: say too, cause a, a lot of people will point to like an effort thing or, or whatever the case may be, but like to the points that you just made, it just seems like he, which makes sense. Cause he's no longer a rookie and he's getting, he's played more in the NBA, now, but he just looks like he understands NBA basketball or NBA defense more than he did last year. And his like intuition is a little sharper. For sure, and, and and to me, that's a more important development. than, like, well, is he trying hard? Because that stuff, you know, comes and goes, or whatever. Everyone' uh, effort wanes here and there, but like him actually understanding and picking up what to do next defensively is way more important, and he's showing that. Totally, um,
1: I, I do think there, like, he still has a ways to go. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there are times that I've seen where the intention is there, but the execution isn't, if that makes sense. Like he'll be there with the early weak side help behind a trap, but then he will like make this low percentage play to try and intercept the skip pass rather than just recovering to his man. And then he'll be nowhere close enough to even offer a contest on the corner shooter because he's like, tried to gamble for this steal. Um, and I think stuff like that, maybe he'll he'll continue to sort out over time. But I think it's more important that the intention is there and that the awareness is there to make those rotations in the first place and to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and I think he'll start to find maybe a healthier balance between gambling and just being solid uh, in the future. So I like what I've seen from him at that end. And I I, I do want to shout out Russell as well because – you know, there's there's been a lot of good and bad with him at the defensive end, but I think his rotations have been pretty sharp. Uh, he's more proactive. He he sinks when he needs to sink. He tags when he needs to tag. Uh, but then again, like there's stuff where I'm like, OK, if if other teams start knocking down their threes, maybe the, maybe the, the weaknesses will come to the four a little bit more, because to me, a big part of the issue with his defense has always been that even when he makes the right rotation, he's kind of just there. You know what I mean? Like he's not, yeah. he, he, he's not that strong. He's not really stopping the ball or impacting the play. Like he's not a physical defender. Um, so actually I feel like when the Wolves blips, they've generally avoided having him be the tag man. And sometimes that's just because he's playing at the point of attack, but there are teams that will obviously try and attack him by, by sticking his man in the weak side corner. And so making him be the helper. And I feel like the wolves, a lot of the time will just avoid having him be that helper. Like they want one of their long ass wings to be the person who's tagging and trying to stop the ball, but that can compromise them at times, right? Because if, if Russell is on the side of the floor with two shooters and say like McDaniels is on the side of the floor with one shooter, and they're sending McDaniel's to help, you know, from the strong side rather than Russell from the weak side. Then, if that one shooter isolated on that side of the floor is just like lifting up to the wing, that's pretty much a guaranteed wide open three every single time. Um, so, like the, the way that they try and scheme around his limitations as a defender, I, I do think can still compromise him a bit. But as far as like what he's doing within his sort of physical capabilities, I think he's been great. That trio as a whole, I think they. That's where our defensive concerns stem from, because I think they actually have a decent amount of like defensive infrastructure around those three guys. And I think it's working because those three guys, you know, within, I guess, the confines of their physical limitations, or in Edwards' case, just like experiential limitations, are doing about the best they can do.
0: Offensively, D'Lo has still been an inefficient scorer, but he's been a good playmaker for them. Yes. And, you know, he's taking care of the ball. He's moving it. It kind of made me wonder because if you recall, it might have been in the offseason when we were talking about Minnesota as like a potential Simmons destination. And, and I said, look, if, they, if the Sixers get desperate enough to get to a point where like the Timberwolves can use D'Angelo Russell and, I don't know, Beasley and like some other filler and picks to get Simmons because I do think a Downs-Edwards-Simmons trio is like a perfect two-way trio. That, that that obviously would be an incredible move for Minnesota and I think it would make sense for both sides. I think you were, and I understand why, you were hesitant to believe the Sixers would ever go for that mm-hmm. or how much D'Lo could really help them. Based on what you've seen so far this season, has, has your opinion changed at all on that front? Do you think it is more likely today than it was a few months ago that the Timberwolves could actually get that deal done? Do you think it's any more likely today than it was a few months ago that Russell could actually help the Sixers in in a big way? Or are you of the same mind you were then where it's like, okay, maybe D'Lo's having, uh, he's playing better than you thought he would, but he's still not going to be the guy in that deal.
1: I would say it's changed a little bit, but I still don't think it's a move. The Sixers are going to make, and I'm still not sure it's a move that I would make if I was the Sixers, because I just think, I just think that makes them like a little bit too small and flimsy at the point of attack where that's putting so much on Embiid on the back line and just, I know they've been playing without Simmons anyway, and they've been defending more than acceptably with Embiid on the floor, even when Simmons isn't there. But I don't know. It just makes me think of what Utah looked like in the playoffs last year, where Gobert is just getting hung out to dry time after time after time because you know nobody on the Jazz could stay in front of their man on the perimeter. And I just think that would be too big a strain on him. And like, okay, so... You have like Russell playing next to Maxi, and then who else? You know, like Tobias Harris is out there. Maybe Thibault's out there to provide some defensive insulation. But can you get can just, you get Vanderbilt tr- in the deal? Just, sorry, can you get Vanderbilt in the deal? Maybe I, but then I'm starting to think it's like, okay, do, do the Wolves want to do that? Like, I think right. my concern from the Wolves' side in doing that deal is like they're pretty reliant right now on Russell's off the dribble playmaking which they obviously wouldn't be getting if they got Simmons back as much as I think you know a Simmons Towns front front court would fit together really well do they kind of run into some of the same problems that the Sixers have I'm sure they would love to have the Sixers problems of the last few years you know like getting bounced in the second round routinely would be a great outcome for the Timberwolves but I think they would maybe run into some of the same issues where they just don't have the off the dribble pop uh, and they really struggle and get gummed up in the half court. But, um, you know, in terms of like their offense struggling on the whole, I guess I would say, yeah, like like Russell and Edwards are both high usage players who are pretty inefficient scorers. Um, it's, it, Russell Towns and Edwards are all between 27 27% percent and 27.6 percent usage. So they're all using essentially equivalent uh, numbers of possessions. And I do think like what, what towns, uh, sorry, what Edwards and Russell do is like really important uh, and stuff that towns can't necessarily do, but they're also using up a lot of possessions and not necessarily converting them into points at a particularly efficient rate. But I do think, um, you know, I like the sites that they run that involve all three of those guys. And I think if there was a way that they could get better spacing without compromising their defense, and again, I don't really know how they do that. Uh, it's, you know, like players like Mikael Bridges don't just grow on trees, but like that's the type of player I feel like they need to really make this all work. Um, but like one thing they run a lot is they, they just run horns with those three guys, which is, it's like kind of similar to what the Nuggets were doing with Jokic, Gordon and Murray before Murray got hurt last year. And obviously those guys aren't nearly as good as the Nuggets players are, but there's just a ton of variations of stuff that they can run. Out of those horn sets and most of the time it's like russell is at the left elbow towns is at the right elbow edwards is is, uh entering the ball to russell and russell's playmaking out of there and it's just variations of screening actions between cat and edwards um like cat will set the back screen for edwards to dive toward the rim or edwards will set a pin down for cat to pop or one of them will slip that screen and dart back door and russell's just able to dime those guys up from the elbow the problem is, like, sometimes, again, when, like, the opposing team is just roving off of the non-shooters in the corner, those players can still get pretty gummed up. So that's what the, the issue that I feel like they're running into right now is, like, the, the defensive players that they need to put on the floor uh, are gumming things up for them on offense. And I actually think, you know, Beverly, who we cited as, like, maybe their best two-way player before the start of the season— has been really good and, and entering him into the starting lineup actually like turbocharged that starting lineup to the point that they were destroying teams but uh, he's out now with I think an adductor injury Um, so they've had to kind of find their way around that and obviously you don't want to be like so dependent on Patrick Beverly that things go south when he's injured but um, I feel like that's the closest they've found to a solution to that is having Beverly on the floor with those other three guys
0: yeah and for the most part it's working well I guess not offensively but <laughs> Um okay it's going to be really interesting to see you know how this team goes forward this season because like i said i, th- I think the opportunities there maybe more so just because of the state of the west than anything the that timberwolves are doing right but the opportunities there to not just like squeak into the play in or squeak into the playoffs proper but like to be in the mix to be in like a four or five series. And I don't think anyone saw that kind of upside for the Timberwolves this year. So considering the state of this franchise in general, but you know, especially during the cat years, that would be a massive development. Now, whether that ends, you know, ends up leading to any sort of sustainable success, we'd have to see, but baby steps are needed here. And they do at least look capable of taking that first baby step or big baby step, I guess I would say.
1: Um, yeah. I would say like somewhat similar to the Blazers, although obviously they've been more successful than the Blazers have with this, uh, you know, aggressive hedging slash trapping scheme. But I would like to see maybe a little bit more selectivity in how they use it. And it's not just like the guards that they blitz against is like one thing because they're doing it against everybody. Like they're, they're like blitzing Gabe Vincent and Howell Neto. It's like, Gotta get, 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 get the ball out of their hands. <laughs> maybe don't, maybe don't. Um, but I was noticing this, like that game against the Wizards the other night when Harold just absolutely destroyed them. Uh, I don't know if you watched any of that game, but Harold had 10 dunks in that game. And I'm thinking like, okay, you know, even leaving aside the fact that they were blitzing Neto and like KCP, I, I, f- I feel like just think about the big that's on the other end of those pick and rolls and whether you're going to be able to survive that. Uh, because, you know, and I'm guilty of this too. Like I typically think, okay, the the bigs that you want to worry about blitzing against are like the passing bigs who can dice you up in four on three, which is true to a certain extent. But then there are also just like the hyper-aggressive rim runners like Harrell, who you have to worry about them just scoring over, you know, whichever smaller player is coming over to tag. And that came back to burn them in that game too. So I think... And maybe it's, you know, they're, they're just trying to get used to playing the system like that's their base. And and over the course of the season, they'll get a little bit more selective about it. But I think when you play an aggressive scheme, you're always playing with fire and just walking a tightrope to a certain extent. And I don't think it needs to be that way. Like they can make things a little bit easier on themselves. Um, So that's something I'll be looking for, you know, as the season goes on, because with their defensive profile, the corner threes they're giving up, the shots at the rim they're giving up, the fouls, the defensive rebounding, all the downsides of the way they're playing, that is going to come back to bite them. Like They are going to regress defensively. And I think when that happens, they're going to need to come up with some counters and some some stylistic variability uh, to help get them through what are probably going to be some ine- uh, inevitable struggles. But yeah, on the whole, I think it's, it's hard to quibble too much with what we've seen from them because it's uh it's been a long time since we've seen a wolves team this fun this competent and uh i'm excited to to see how the rest of the season goes for them you got any other thoughts on this fine friday i don't think i do um
0: in general i guess even basketball you just don't have a single thought in your mind at this moment
1: i've emptied them all out of my brain i'm sitting here thoughtless and it feels great (laughs) (laughs) oh that's the beauty of two episodes a week Yes, a lot to get off
0: my chest. Empty out all of our thoughts. Um, All right, well, with that, then I guess I will get to our actual fan shout out of the week. And this one will require some uh, thinking on your part, wolf So, Oh, no. (laughs) Stay ready. I hope you have at least one thought in your mind. Mark (laughs) Stevens in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, who is one of the few people who reached out via email so far in our call outs. But anyway, this is what Mark wrote to me. Wanted to drop you a line. Sorry, wanted to draw both of you a line. Absolutely love Pound the Rock. I started listening in spring 2019 as the Raptors championship run started. Have been reading both of your work on the score forever. Was probably one of the first adopters of the score app in 2007. That's back when the score also still was a TV station. And I just launched the app. Used to listen to a crap ton of podcasts when my commute was 90 minutes each day. Now that there's no commute for me, the only pod left in my rotation is Pound the Rock. It's appointment listening the day it drops for me. A couple of episodes ago, you, and it was uh not me, it was Wolf On actually, but you made a reference to the greatest show of all time being It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm. The question I want answered from both is what is the greatest It's Always Sunny episode, and why is it kitten mittens? Other acceptable answers include any of the Char D. McDennis episodes or the gang goes to a water park. Keep up the great work and educating me on the NBA outside of my little Raptors universe. Mark, I will say I actually – no, I have nothing against the show, but I never watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So that was definitely Wolfon who dropped that line, which means it's all on him. So, Wolfon, please answer the man's question.
1: Well, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean I did watch the show, but I think I probably only watched the first four seasons of it. And that was like at least eight or nine years ago. So uh, I definitely – Don't remember a lot of it uh and i have missed a lot of episodes including kitten mittens i never saw that one but um i feel like the ones that stand out in my mind like the i mean there's the pepe silvia one which is like where that gif comes from that i referenced that's always all over twitter um one when uh dennis and d go on welfare and wind up addicted to crack um i don't know why those are the ones that stand out in my mind but uh I mean, I remember like loving the show and laughing my ass off when I watched it, but like sometimes just you stop watching a show for a certain period of time, you lose the momentum and then it's just like really hard to get back into it. And that unfortunately happened to me with It's Always Sunny. And then it's like you turn around and there's 15 seasons. So it feels very daunting to catch up. Uh, But there's not actually 15 seasons, is there? There's like something close to 15 seasons. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, it's been on the air for a long time. Mash basically
0: or, or one of those like '70s shows that i think lasted forever i don't even actually match might not have lasted that long because it was supposed to be covering a war so it i happen.
1: actually i think that i saw uh rob McElhenney post on twitter a couple days ago that it is about to become the longest running sitcom of all time so, it's always sunny yeah
0: Okay, MASH ran 11
1: years, which is
0: really long for a sitcom.
1: Anyway, point being, it feels very daunting to catch up, uh, but I did really enjoy those early seasons. And I apologize, Mitchell, for not being able to sufficiently answer your question. But uh, I do really appreciate the email and your listenership. uh, And I uh, I hope you'll keep listening, in spite of my lack of It's Always Sunny knowledge.
0: All right, there you go. One fan shout out this week, and we disappointed him. We do have a few fan shout outs banked for the next three to five weeks, I'd say. But now that we're sorry, it's not three to five weeks, three to five episodes. And now that we're going twice a week, that means we need more fan (laughs) shout outs. So please do not let the fact that we have a few bank discourage you from reaching out. We want to hear from you. um, I'm going to have to start
1: making burner accounts to, uh, to write into the show so we can fill the time with these fan shout outs. We're just going to have to start making up names in general. <laughs> but no, as
0: I've said before, you know, I think we've been doing the shout outs now since like last, like we've probably shouted out now close to like a hundred people, but obviously based on the numbers we know and the people that listen, there are still thousands and thousands of you out there who listen consistently and have not gotten a shout out. So again, please, if you're a listener of Pound the Rock, hit us up, Twitter at Joe at Joey W., Instagram, Joe underscore 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 cash. Email joe.wolfon at score.com joseph.casharo at score.com Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a listener. Throw in something funny if you want, and we will definitely get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.